You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Years ago, I was sitting in the library in the high school that I teach in, and I was reading an issue of USA Today. There was an article talking about a new service that was starting up, and it was called Match.com. I bet you've heard of it. It seemed like the perfect way for a quiet guy like me who never went to bars, you know, to meet women. So I went home that night and I signed up only to find out that there were so few people using the new service at that time, there was no one in my area to be matched up with. From what I could figure out, I was the only person in the Albany, New York area that had signed up at that point. So a couple years go by and I somehow ended up back on Match.com. I think a friend mentioned that she was using it at that point. By this time, the internet had exploded and the service had more potential matches for me than just dating myself. To my surprise, since I was a charter member, Match.com had given me a lifetime membership that expired. You're going to love this. It expired in the year 2099. I always joked that they knew something that I didn't, that I'd remain single for the rest of my life and would always need their service. Well, I did get a few dates through their service over the 10 years I was a member. It was through one of my students that I ultimately met my wife. And since February is what many people consider to be the month of love, you know, Valentine's Day, I decided it would be interesting to research a story on dating in the past. Oddly, the story that I'm about to tell you is not the one that I had been working on. I had completed all of my research for the story that I had planned to write, when I stumbled across a story that I'm about to tell you. So let me introduce you to Dorothy Althea Versfeldt. She was born on December 16, 1920 in Brooklyn, New York. In 1936, she married Gerald Thomas Lawler just prior to her 16th birthday. Their first child was Dorothea Alta, or Dorothy, and she was born one year later. Their second was Gerald Thomas Lawler II, or Tommy, and he was born the following year. But sadly, the marriage was not to last. The couple was divorced in 1942. This was not a good time to be a young, divorced mother of two children. At a time when women were expected to stay home to raise their children, it was difficult to find a quality job that paid enough to support a family. Her ex-husband offered little to no financial support, so Dorothy always struggled to make ends meet. Her various jobs included working as a photographer, as a welder during the war, as a private nurse, 
and as a hat check girl at the nearby Midway Inn on Franklin Avenue in North Valley Stream. It was basically expected of a woman to find a husband who could support her family, but World War II threw a big monkey wrench into that plan. You see, the United States had lost more than 250,000 men, most of whom would have been within Dorothy's age range. That gender imbalance placed someone in Dorothy's position, you know, a divorcee with two children, at a great disadvantage when it came to dating and marrying. She was desperate to change her life, and Dorothy knew that she had to do something different to stand out from the crowd, something that was sure to make people take notice. So in May of 1948, 28-year-old Dorothy Lawler walked right into the Hempstead, Long Island office of the Newsday newspaper and requested that they place the following classified ad into their Situations Wanted Female section. Wife for sale. Divorcee, blonde, attractive, wants man to marry and support her and two children. Must be willing and able to make immediate $10,000 cash settlement. Of course, matrimonial ads were nothing new, but this one was an exception. Asking for $10,000 in exchange for marriage, which would be over $100,000 today, seemed quite bold. But this was assurance to whomever Dorothy married that he would be able to financially support her family. The editors at Newsday made the decision not to run the ad. And if they had left it at that, I wouldn't be telling you this story right now. Instead, they decided to go one step further and give Dorothy a half-page write-up on page 3 of their May 25th issue. Virtually overnight, Dorothy went from being an unknown mother of two to front-page news across the nation. This isn't a publicity stunt. In fact, I didn't want any of this until your editor said the paper couldn't take the ad. I don't want to embarrass my children or my parents. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I don't know if you can call it courage or what, but I've been knocking around for eight years since my divorce, and it's been tough. There have been times when I've seen my children without a glass of milk for the day. There must be someone with money he doesn't know what to do with. I just don't believe in love, but surely somewhere there must be a man who wants a wife and two fine children. Perhaps we can learn to love each other after a time. Within 24 hours of that Newsday article, Dorothy Lawler's quiet life would be flipped upside down. The phones at the Newsday offices were ringing off the hook. Reporters came from around the country requesting interviews, and photographers were lining up left and right to snap her picture. But most interesting of all was that 14 of the telephone calls were from men who were responding to her $10,000 proposal. Yeah, a few of them were certain to have been pranks, but it was a promising start. My favorite, and this certainly was a prank, was from a guy offering to buy her, quote, a cocktail or two and give her a spanking. Boy, I didn't know you could publish that in the newspaper in 1948. (laughs) The plan was very simple. It was through her job as the hat check girl at the Midway Inn that she would meet each of her potential suitors. Each day, the paper featured an image of Dorothy either calling or meeting one of her dates. It was great publicity for both the Midway Inn and for Newsday. Amid all the chaos of reporters and photographers that first day, Dorothy was able to meet five of her prospective husbands. While waiting to see her, 
50-year-old automobile salesman George Faber commented, I'd have to know a girl for five or six months before I'd take any step like this. I'd want to know what kind of person she is and what her character is like. When questioned by the press as to when she'd be making a decision, Dorothy replied, I'll make my mind up within a week. I have just enough money to last me that long. I'm serious about this. The man, young or old, who accepts my offer will have to have some spark of personality, plus the cash before I marry him. As you'd expect, not everyone was happy with what they were reading. May I be bold enough to ask if Dorothy Lawler is seeking a husband or advertising the midway in? She seems to be an attractive woman and can earn a livelihood as hundreds of other women do. Why the $10,000 cash on the spot? What is she going to offer for such a huge amount? Dorothy Lawler, in my estimation, has done through publicity what other women have in mind but do not dare to admit to the public openly. I do admire her for that, as it is every woman's intention to marry wealth and have security. One thing people do not seem to remember is that money cannot buy happiness. I believe Dorothy could have been a little more tactful in advertising by not asking for $10,000, but asking for a man who could take care of her and her two children comfortable, to have a little love and understanding offered, and to return the same. I have decided to stay single, if that is what women are like. I wouldn't marry her if she paid me $10,000. What approach Mrs. Lawler uses to get herself a man is none of my business nor anybody else's. However, what burns me up is that she admits to being a member of the nursing profession. I, too, am a member, and many others do not take our profession lightly. Now, I am not so idealistic that I believe all professional people are models of virtue. We have all heard the stock jokes about the ambulance-chasing lawyer, the quack doctor, and plenty about nurses, too, all of which have some basis in fact, I regret to add, However, if this person wants to make a fool of herself publicly, why must she identify herself with a profession which is constantly trying to raise its standards? Profession which, by the personal nature of its work, should mean decency and morality. Recently, the medical profession put in a plea to have all derogatory jokes about doctors taken off the radio. Now I'm asking Mrs. Lawler to do the nurses a favor. If you plan to go on making yourself the laughing stock of the country, please do not advertise yourself as a nurse. A few negative letters to the editor couldn't dissuade Newsday from continuing their daily stories, nor did it discourage Dorothy from her ongoing search for Mr. Wright. The phone calls, letters, telegrams, they all continued to arrive day after day to the offices of Newsday. Dorothy had given herself a deadline of Saturday, May 29th to make a final decision, but a last-minute phone call from a 42-year-old Kentucky horse breeder named Arthur Harris convinced her to wait until Tuesday. He said he would fly to New York to meet her and agreed to wire Mrs. Lawler $100 to hold her over financially until they met. There was one really big problem, however. Horse breeders and the editors of thoroughbred horse publications in Lexington knew nothing of a man named Arthur Harris. Nor was there anyone in the phone book or city directories with that name. This guy appeared to be a fraud. Well, the issue was resolved when a check arrived via Western Union from a man named Arthur Howard, not Arthur Harris. They had the wrong name. Well, the two met that Sunday, May 30th, but little was mentioned about him in the press after that. 
By the next day, Dorothy was once again in the press discussing potential suitors. As the story continued to be followed by readers in newspapers from coast to coast, the number of men interested in Dorothy's offer continued to stream in. From her various statements, it appears that she was slowing things down a bit, you know, so she could be more careful about who she ultimately chose to marry. My mother told me not to be in too much of a hurry with my decision. There's too much at stake. And when questioned as if she had a new deadline, she replied, No deadline. When I'm ready to decide who I'll marry, I'll say, my kids come first. So I thought this would be a good point in the story to pause and let you hear a few more of the comments that readers wrote. I'm wishing you the best of luck. I sympathize with you. Maybe by the will of God, you and I will find happiness for ourselves and our children. I salute you for your pluck. I know that there are thousands of us who would like to say we are looking for a man with money. If there is any way you can get in touch with her, please tell her after she picks one out to please give the rest of them my address. The difference between her and I is I just want a good man to make a good living. Dorothy next turned her focus to a Midland, Michigan building contractor whose name was Max Warrington. He writes that he has a good substantial income and that he needs a mother for his five-year-old daughter as much as I need a father for my kids. But I want to wait until I see him before I'm making up my mind. When interviewed, Max said, The words two fine children compromise me. To me, those words meant that you really believe in love. In fact, you are so desperately in love with your children that you would make any sacrifice that would guarantee security for them and, incidentally, yourself. Bring your children out here and we will raise yours and mine together. I will pay all expenses and we will live nice, also in a respectable manner. This seemed promising, but for some unknown reason, the relationship never blossomed. Then, on the evening of June 4, 1948, Dorothy had narrowed her choices down to two men. The first was the Kentucky horse breeder Arthur Howard, whom she had met the previous Sunday. The other was a newcomer, a man whom she had yet to meet. His name was James Mulkey, and he was from Wawoka, Oklahoma. He claimed that he owned a lot of real estate, 80 cattle, and he was worth over $200,000. That'd be over $2 million today. So which one do you think she chose? Well, the answer is neither. Instead, Dorothy Lawler chose 33-year-old divorcee Dan Wicker. He was the owner of Danny's Musical Bar in Daytona Beach, Florida. The father of one child, Dan sent Dorothy a telegram with the best pickup line ever. In fact, if I had known this line, I would have never have needed Match.com. Are you ready? Is you is or is you ain't gonna be my baby? To which Dorothy replied, Do you do or do you don't want me for your baby? She added, How could I resist a guy with a sense of humor like that? The two talked on the phone several times and appeared to be equally smitten with each other. It wasn't long before he wired her a plane ticket so she could fly down to Florida on Monday, June 7th. I'm very thrilled about it, and so is he from what he said over the phone. It sounds good, and if everything turns out, we'll fly to Mexico to be married. According to Dan, She was ready and willing to marry me, sight unseen. But after talking it over on the phone, we decided we'd better get acquainted first. And in another classic Dan Wicker statement, he said, 
You don't buy pork chops without seeing them on the scales. At this point, Dorothy had absolutely no idea what Dan looked like. But gosh, with a personality like that, it doesn't make any difference what he looks like. But once she saw a picture of him, she was sold. He's cute. Anyone who can't be happy with that guy is a moron. When Dorothy was about to embark upon her journey south, a reporter questioned her about the money, to which she replied, The 10000 is just a necessary part of the bargain. I do wish, though, I had met Dan under different circumstances. She was clearly excited. It's just the way I always dreamed it would be. When are we going to get married? Well, I'd like to do it fast, but if he's the guy, he's the boss. We'll make our plans at his convenience, naturally. I'm excited. What do you think? I feel just like a bride out of field, thrilled and excited. When her plane finally touched down, Dorothy was met by a cheering crowd of over 200 people. Photographers snapped away as Danny gave Dorothy a big hug and then a kiss. The two then climbed into the back of his convertible as a police escort, sirens and all, led the couple through the town to their final destination. You guessed it, Danny's Musical Bar. The place was packed and Danny was forced to tend bars Dorothy looked on. His special was the Buck 75 Dorothy Lawler Cocktail. It consisted of cherry brandy, gin, lime juice, and pineapple. The stem of the glass was wrapped in a dollar bill, supposedly to keep your fingers warm. Dorothy sat to the side as Danny took care of business and commented, I like Daytona Beach very much and would like to thank the people for the nice welcome they've given me. As far as I'm concerned, we're going through with this. It's up to Danny now. The next day, the two took a cruise on Danny's 46-foot or 14-meter-long yacht, which he had renamed, well, you guessed it, the Dorothy Lawler. But things went south very quickly. First, the boat was outfitted with large signs that read, Dorothy Lawler and Danny, courtesy of the Howard Boatworks. And who was piloting the boat? None other than the real owner of the boat, Bill Howard. Also along for the ride was his wife and a publicity photographer. Not only that, but it turns out that Danny was still married. He had never divorced. This fact had been discovered just prior to the arrival of Dorothy's flight, to which he responded, It can all be fixed in a few days if Dorothy and I decide to get married. After all, Florida is a divorce state. As for the convertible that he used to parade Dorothy through the streets of Daytona Beach with, he didn't own that either. It belonged to a friend. Maybe perhaps the fact that the name of Danny's bar had been painted conspicuously onto both sides of the car should have been a tip-off that something was amiss here. To this, Danny told the press, It's true that I borrowed that car, but that doesn't mean that I don't have a car of my own. A good one. But it's a closed car, and I borrowed that open car because I know that presidents and people like that use that kind of car when they make public appearances. It was very clear from what was quoted in the press that Dorothy was very upset with how she was treated, while Danny was doing his best to save face and protect his business. Who is this character anyway? I don't even know where he is. Maybe he's out with a redhead for all I know. Isn't this a hell of a way for a celebrity to spend an afternoon? I didn't send for Dorothy to come to Daytona Beach so she could be put on display like an animal. She's a human being and deserves to be treated like one. Maybe the way we come together is a little out of the ordinary, but that's no reason why she should be persecuted. 
I called it off because he is a phony. All he wanted to do was build up his rundown business, which has tripled since I came here. He told me that he thought my chances of getting an answer to my offer was pretty slim and my story was petering out, so he wanted to help me. And she's a good sport. Went out for dinner twice and she paid the check both times. And that means I'm still open for bids. Where are all the guys in Daytona Beach with all the dough? I'd like to meet some of them. What I asked for was cash online, and until I see that, I don't make any promises to anybody. As Dorothy put it, we are both too nervous to ever have a successful marriage. We'll part good friends. Dorothy says she is leaving early Monday. She didn't say where she was going. Well, Dorothy did know where she was going. Another gentleman had expressed interest in meeting her, and this time she was off to the Dominican Republic. He made no mention of the $10,000, but he was paying for her to stay in a four-star hotel there. What the heck? He's sending me a round-trip ticket, isn't he? He has a Spanish-sounding name. I hear that they like blondes in South America. Maybe I can make myself a deal. This time, everything was done out of the public eye, and she returned home on June 22nd of 1948 without a wedding ring. Just one month later, things were looking up for Dorothy Lawler. Capitalizing on her newfound fame, she was appearing on stage at the Copa in Philadelphia as one of their featured entertainers. In a July 27, 1948 interview that appeared in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, she reflected back on the whole $10,000 marriage ad. What made me do it? A couple of tough weeks with no cash coming in. That was why. She said that she had a lot of offers, but none of them panned out. One guy gave me a check for $10,000. He wanted to know if I could leave my kids with my mother and dad. Then he got drunk and fell off a bar stool. I tore up the check. I'm not looking for that kind of man. The one thing that Dorothy was certain of was that she did not foresee a future in show business. I should say not. I like to cook. I miss the kids. Maybe this way, though, I'll meet the right one. Anyway, this is my last booking. I know, I know. I'm getting three times what I was getting then, but this is not for me. In the first place, I can't sing. I just talk songs. I have a line of gags and stuff, but I really have to get my applause first. In an Associated Press syndicated article from November 1948, Dorothy is quoted as saying, What gave me the idea? I was sitting in the chair, cold broke, no job. I suddenly thought this was the way to provide for my two young children and my parents. So I got a lot of publicity, so I got a few nightclub dates at $500 a week, so I'm broke again. The money was used for doctor bills and other old debts. The article summed up her experience with these stats. Letters 3,000, wrong steers 100, near misses 20, paid nightclub experiences 7, all expense paid trips to interview prospects 2, Husband zero. And I'll leave you with one final quote from Dorothy. A good man is hard to find. The woods are full of phonies, kibitzers, cranks, comedians, guys just interested in a good time, not marriage. And here's one last letter to the editor from a reader in Patchogue. In reference to your articles on Dorothy Lawler's adventure, I request that you write no news of the outcome of her search. I have read various letters expressing annoyance because of articles on this matter and think that they are very unfair. I have the same opinion as many of the writers on Mrs. Lawler's quest for a man with money, yet I still enjoy reading about this odd situation. I am sure many other readers do also. 
Because we don't approve of such matters as husband advertising, rape, theft, murder, wars, and other bits of news, still it is interesting to read. We like to know what is going on in the world, regardless how odd or terrible. A newspaper is published to bring us the news of the world, to bring to us the bizarre, the fantastic, as well as the beauty and goodness in life. I have opinions as to the way of life Mrs. Lawler chooses to live, yet I feel that it is not my right to dictate to any newspaper what it should print. I believe wholly and completely in freedom of press, and when I find there is something I do not care to read, I turn the page to something I enjoy more. I would like to read what further happens to a woman of this nature and feel resentment at anyone who deprives me of this small satisfaction of my curiosity just because they do not care to read it. Well, they never did write a follow-up story as to what happened to Dorothy Lawler. When her 15 minutes of fame were up, the press basically forgot about her. Well, I found someone who knows exactly what happened to her. We're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsor, and when we return, I'll introduce you to her. And there are a couple of surprises coming up, so just hold on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Nearly all the voices you just heard were my colleagues. I grabbed them right before vacation and asked them to record their lines cold. That means I had no rehearsal. Now, the one exception was the woman who read the lines of Dorothy Lawler. So why don't you tell everyone what your name is? My name is Kathy, and I am the granddaughter of Dorothy Lawler. Well, I do appreciate you uh, being on the podcast, and uh, I hope I didn't have to do too much convincing to have you uh, uh, read the lines of your grandmother. Oh, no, not at all. I, it was interesting, kind of intimidating, because uh, I didn't know how she sounded in 1948, but I got through it. Well, it is a fun story, and I'm glad that you were able to do it. Oh, yeah, this is all my. <laughs> 
How old were you when you first heard the story? In my 20s. I'm sorry, in my 20s. And at the time when I heard the story, I didn't believe it. I thought it was a myth. You know, it was a a family story that went out there, and I didn't believe that there was any truth to it. And is it something that was discussed through the years after that, or just kind of... Well, my mom would mention it. Um, You know, she was 12 at the time, and her brother was 11 at the time. And, you know, they would make comments about it. But, you know, we would all think it was just a story. We just didn't think there was any weight behind it or if there was any truth behind it. And it wasn't until actually in, like, 2008, my mom was here at the house, and she mentioned it again. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go look. I'm going to go see if I can find any articles on there. And I went online and I went searching because she thought it was like in the Patchogue Advance paper or something. And and I called a couple libraries out in the Long Island area and couldn't, I didn't get any hits. So I gave up on it. And then probably about four years ago, my cousin came across some articles and he passed them along with the family. Um, so with that information, then I ended up doing more searches and found a little bit more of the articles. And then until you reached out to me and you have a mess load of articles. Was it quite surprising you to find out this is a national story? This is front page news at the time. Yes, it was quite surprising. And actually when it was in print and I saw it and I just, yikes. And I wasn't sure whether to share that with my do- my own daughters. I remember my mother saying how embarrassing and horrifying it was at that young age. And I felt that embarrassment, too. And I, you know, I shared it with my husband first. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to show the girls this. You know, this is their grandmother. And then he's like, that's right, Kay. This is your grandmother. You need to share it with them. So I did, and, you know, they thought they got a hoot out of it. They thought it was hysterical, you know, but they're, you know, in a, in a different era than what we grew up with. You know, we didn't talk about uh, family skeletons in the family closet as, you know, now people post it all over the Internet. Your grandfather, uh, did you ever meet him? No, I did not. He was never... Um, Actually, him and my grandmother continued to be friends even after their divorce, but we never met him. He was never a a present father in my mother's life. Do you know what happened to him after? He died in 1976. Your grandmother did remarry after this whole uh, thing fell out of the news. Mm -hmm, Several times. And... uh... Yes. In fact, how many times was your grandmother married? Total, four times. Four times. So uh, first was your grandfather, right? Yes. Which she divorced. And then, of course, she was actively seeking a husband uh, through the news. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, according to the newspaper, didn't was not successful. But then again... Yeah, so, th- so uh, this is the part that uh, after she falls out of the news, what happened? What had happened was, you know, I had always heard a story about her marrying a man um, from Oklahoma. His name was James Mulkey. And my mom and my uncle would always say, old man Mulkey from Oklahoma. 
They they moved to Oklahoma for a little bit and came back, but they referred to him as Old Man Malky. So as I was doing my own research um, on the family, you know, I did come across a marriage that they were married August 28, 1950, divorced December 8, 1950. So that, you know, the marriage was just, you know, less than four months. And so you have sent me these PDF files and all the articles. And as I was reading, going through the articles, I noticed that one of the suitors that she received a letter from was from James Mulkey in Oklahoma. Now, I remind you, this was 1948. Well, she married him. She ended up marrying him August 28, 1950. So, yes, she did marry one of the suitors. When you go back and listen to the recording that I did actually mention him in there, she was trying to decide between two guys and ultimately didn't choose either. And then the story ends, and and then uh, now you're filling in the missing piece and that she did marry one of these guys who was one of her suitors after. So that's very interesting. Unfortunately, the marriage didn't last. Now she, now she did eventually find someone after. So why don't you tell about that? She did. She married a man. Um, his name was Terrence Madigan. He was with the U.S. Coast Guard. And 1958, they got married. I believe it was September of 1958. And she had uh, a beautiful, loving, everything she wanted in a relationship with this man. He idolized her. He loved her. Um, she was the happiest that she could be until 1968 when he had a heart attack and died. Yeah, it's very sad. I mean, uh, I've looked at some of the pictures you have on Ancestry. They do seem very happy together. Very compatible. Very compatible. I mean, they just look like they're always in love uh, in the pictures. And he adopted my mother and my my mom's brother, as not, not legally, but he accepted them as their own, his own kids and treated them with the love and respect that you would a, a child. And, you know, my own mother had five kids and he accepted us as his blood, as his as his grandchildren. Well, it's really nice that she found real love, you know, true love after, you know, this was in the news. Because, you know, I mean, the press can be pretty cruel. And some of the letters to the editor and things like that try to make her out like, you know, she's a money grabber, you know. Uh, and it, it, it's nice that, you know, she really did find what she was looking for in the end, you know. Uh, it, it's kind of sad that he died. Uh, you know, he was pretty young. He was like 42 years old, I think, when he died. Yeah, 41. 41, yeah. Very, very sad. Uh, and then she remarried one more time, right? Yes, she did. I believe it was in 75. 1974 is 1975 she married again. And that union didn't last long. At that time, they were both drinkers. And... You know, um, there was a lot of fighting, and uh, the marriage never worked out. They never divorced, but she left him. Why don't you tell me a little about your grandmother? What kind of what kind of person was she like? She was creative. She wore many different hats. Anything that she put her mind to, she could do it. Uh, there was nothing that could be that was too big or too small for her to handle or to do. She she was a seamstress. Whatever she made, she made her own patterns. She was a cook. She was a baker. She was a painter. She did ceramics. She did photography. 
She reupholstered furniture. She refurbished furniture. She had a, a ceramic shop in Florida. She taught ceramic classes. She poured her own molds. There was nothing that she couldn't do. A woman with many different hats. Wow, she had a lot of skills. Uh, I want to thank you very much for doing this. It's uh, really been wonderful how much of assistance you've offered, and uh, thank you for reading the part of your grandmother. Oh, well, thank you. I, I enjoyed it, and, um, you know, the reason why I'm, I am I decided to do it, because you had sent me over that, um, a sample of your podcast, and I thought you did a beautiful story with that, and I thought that would be neat to have that story to hand down for my, gener- you know, my kids and for their next generation. I'm glad I can do it. Well, thanks again. So thank you. So thank you. Anyway, uh, I thought uh, I always close the podcast by saying uh, useless, useful. I'll leave that for you to decide. So I thought since it's a story about your grandmother, maybe you could say that. Useless, useful. I'll leave that for you to decide. Perfect. Soon the usual fall dances will take place. And as always, the crowd will gather at the refreshment table where sparkling Canada dry water will be the ruling club soda. Canada dry water will never be a wallflower at the party or dance because it is so well liked by everybody. For one thing, it makes your favorite drink taste better. And its millions of extra bubbles keep the drink lively and sparkling for a good long time. So when you dance over and stop at the refreshment table... Always pour your club soda from the platinum-colored bottle with a silver top, the Canada Dry bottle. Your drink itself will dance in the glass when the soda is Canada Dry. That commercial for Canada Dry Club Water is from the August 22, 1939 broadcast of the trivia show Information, Please. Canada Dry traces its roots back to 1890. That's when pharmacist John J. McLaughlin opened a carbonated water plant in Toronto. Initially, he sold his carbonated water to local drugstores so they could add flavored beverages and fruit juices. He noticed that syrupy sweet ginger ales were gaining popularity, so he set out to create a lighter, less sweet version, a dry version, you know, kind of like a dry wine that would be kind of a non-alcoholic type of champagne. With that vision in mind, in 1904, he created what he christened to be Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Exports to New York City started in 1919 and proved to be so popular that the company had to set up a manufacturing plant in Manhattan. When Prohibition went into effect in the United States, sales skyrocketed. Canada Dry proved to be the perfect mixer for helping to mask the taste of homemade alcohol. While it was ginger ale that made the company famous, as the company grew, it continued to introduce new products like the club water that you heard here, and of course additional drink mixers and various other soda drinks. McLaughlin suddenly died in 1914, and the company remained under family control until being sold off into what became Canada Dry Ginger Ale Incorporated. Today, the company is part of Dr. Pepper Snapple Group, and it was announced less than a month ago that the company had agreed to be purchased by coffee maker Keurig Green Mountain. So here's a question for you. One of my favorite Muppet characters on the show Sesame Street when growing up was Oscar the Grouch. You know, the guy that lived in the garbage can? What few people know is that Oscar was not always green. 
Do you know what his original color was? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know what his color originally was at the end of this podcast. In keeping with today's theme, here are three additional stories about people who placed ads in newspapers for a spouse. Wanted, a wife, must be between 40 and 65 years of age, sound of wind and limb, and of cheerful nature. I have comfortable home to offer and am eligible for old age pension. See or write Ezra Word in Three Lakes, Wisconsin. That was the ad that Ezra Worden wished to place in the classified section of the Rhinelander Daily News, but its editor decided it was worthy of a complete story in their October 11, 1935 issue. At the time, Ezra was 74 years of age. He claimed to be in excellent health, and to prove it, he said he had recently picked 700 bushels of potatoes, and during the last blueberry season, he had garnered 350 quarts of berries. He had been married twice before, and his last marriage lasted 37 years. Sadly, both wives had died. Over 400 women from all over the country responded to Ezra's request, but in the end he chose 52-year-old Mrs. Maggie Cornwall. She also was twice widowed and lived in nearby Crescent, Wisconsin. The two were married on the evening of November 5, 1935, in a ceremony that was witnessed by hundreds of people. A dance was held at the Three Lakes School Gymnasium, and the happy couple was left to live the rest of their lives together. Did they succeed? You betcha. When Ezra Worden died on October 20, 1951, at 90 years of age, the couple had been married for nearly 16 years. In our next story, in January of 1952, 39-year-old Jane Gordon was visiting friends in Shalimar, Florida, when she decided to place an ad in the Montgomery, Alabama Advertiser. What was she looking for? A husband. She wanted a husband to help pay off her $6,000 in debt. That would be about $56,000 today. During her one-week search, she rejected about 15 men from Alabama and Florida, but she was interested in another guy from Texas. As to how she accumulated so much debt, $4,000 of it came from an apartment fire in 1949 that caused her to lose everything. That included her furniture and clothing. The remaining $2,000 was from her identical twin's medical bills, who had since passed on. And in our last tidbit for today, in early August of 1956, 22-year-old Vita Hutto took out an ad in a Houston newspaper seeking a husband. She was seeking a man who was, quote, fairly handsome, Protestant, dependable, likes to fish, and earns at least $400 monthly. That'd be about $3,700 per month today. Vita said that she decided to place the ad in the newspaper because she had tired of seeing all of her friends getting married while she remained single. While she did have numerous male friends, none met her standards for a husband. Now, the text of her personal ad was fairly ordinary, but her boss flipped out when he learned of its existence. 
Soon, the young stenographer was not only looking for a husband, she was also looking for a new job, that is, after her boss fired her. Luckily, all the publicity from the firing led to her phone ringing off the hook continuously. So if you'd like to call her, the number in Houston is Hillcrest 23788. My guess is that after all this time, she no longer has that same number. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you what the original color of Oscar the Grouch was. The original sketches show Oscar to be magenta in color, but it turns out that early color television cameras couldn't process that color very well. As a result, the decision was made to make Oscar orange in color. From the time Oscar made his first appearance on November 10th, 1969, until the very end of Sesame Street's entire first season, he remained orange in color. The green version of Oscar the Grouch made its first appearance on the Flip Wilson show in mid-1970s. When the second season of Sesame Street made its premiere, Oscar would be forever green. Now, observing kids were sure to notice the change, so they came up with a fun way to explain the color change. You know, while many of us go on vacation and get a nice tan, Oscar changed color while on vacation to the very damp, swamp, mushy, muddy. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Once again, I'd like to thank Dorothy Lawler's granddaughter, Kathy, for all her help. And I'd also like to thank all of my colleagues for taking the time out of their busy day to read the various quotes that you heard. Just a reminder to like the show on Facebook. And if you haven't done so already, I'd greatly appreciate it if you head on over to iTunes and leave some positive comments about the show. If you'd like to see pictures of what Dorothy Lawler looked like, be sure to visit my website, uselessinformation.org, to see them. I should have them posted within the next few days. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all of the quality history podcasts the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.